But let's turn to uh, Acts 19, which is where we're going to finish. We're going to finish the entire chapter this morning. And I think it's really important that if you can open your Bibles or your notepad or whatever else you have to Acts 19. Um, Pastor Brian kind of taught on the first part of Acts 19 uh, two weeks ago and also last week. But I think it's important for pushing through the, the end of the story that we kind of recount what's gone on at this point. Um, at the beginning of the chapter, it talks about Paul coming to this seaside city called Ephesus, which was in its region uh, at its peak with a population of about a quarter million. Now, in that time frame, in that culture, that was a lot of people in one location. And this was a seacoast city, as I said, with its influence and monies and the trading that happened in that city, it would be similar in our culture to be like San Francisco or Los Angeles. And as Paul comes into this city, he meets 12 disciples who he teaches and instructs, and they get filled with the Holy Spirit. And then during that time, he spends about three months in the synagogue, as you're reading along there, uh, teaching and training and reasoning and persuading men and women about the kingdom of God and the rulership of God over our lives. But at some point, there's a hardening, there's a dispute that happens, and Paul leaves that synagogue with a large group of new disciples, and for about two more years, uh, it says in the scriptures there that he speaks in the school of Tyrannus. So at the end of about two and a half years, um, all who dwelt in Asia Minor around Ephesus and the surrounding cities had heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul continues to proclaim the true God that is in Jesus, and with this, the Holy Spirit confirms this word with many healings and deliverance. And uh, Pastor Brian, a couple weeks ago, mentioned these, the unusualness of these miracles in the sense that the scriptures say here in Acts 19 that handkerchiefs and aprons were carried from Paul's you know, as he would work as a tent maker, would be carried to people that were sick or demonized, and the demons would leave and people would be healed. And it's kind of interesting that, in a sense, that culturally speaking, in the city of Ephesus, many magicians and occultists would use similar ways of proclaiming themselves by doing demonic healings and powers. So it's interesting that the Lord is not necessarily mimicking, but rather showing himself as the true God and a powerful God who's able to heal and deliver. So in the midst of these miracles, as we're reading through Acts 19 there, exorcists, Jewish exorcists, are torn apart literally by demons while trying to use the name of Jesus as an invocation. And fear, it says, falls upon the entire city and the true nature of Jesus is exalted even more. So much that people who were already believers at that time confessed their hidden deeds and even brought out their magical arts and scrolls and burned them. Now, it says that these are believers. Well, wait a minute. If Paul was instructing and training and teaching, why would they still be doing that? We'll look into that a little bit. But as they burn this, uh, the writer Luke here mentions that the value is roughly about 50,000 drachmas, 50,000 silver pieces, depending on your translation. That's 50,000 days wages. Or another way of looking at it 
would be 150 people working a full year to equal the financial value of these scrolls. In today's world, that might be a million, a million and a half dollars. Now, just stop and think about that. That is staggering. That's a staggering amount to just burn up. But there was a serious expression of repentance and renouncing of something. Historically speaking, then, we see this mixture of white magic being done by Jewish exorcists and mystics and Gentiles also doing this in the art of incantations and spells. But then through Paul, this true nature of power and deliverance by the kingdom of God coming through Jesus with the message of repentance and forgiveness breaks through into this cultural normalcy. People renounce a temporary power and bondage by giving up their magical arts, thus beginning to affect the bottom line profit and mar the profit margin and revealing the relative powerlessness of this god, Diana or Artemis, as an idol in comparison to this Jesus. So now, with this little backstory, we'll continue to finish up what Luke tells us in the rest of this chapter, starting with verse 23, which we'll read. I'll make a few comments on it and observations. And after learning what Luke was conveying to his readers, what they were seeing, we'll see what this passage says to us as modern-day believers. So let's look at the first slide and read it. Uh, I guess this TV screen isn't working, so I'll just turn my back on you if you don't mind. So about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, just going to pause a second before we go on. In this culture, it's important that we understand that commerce and open worship of gods was much more symbiotic than in our day. There, was, there is much more than simple greed that's going on here, but an actual destruction of culture and the affluence and influence of a large city. To understand this interaction, I think it's necessary to describe this deity's influence a little bit more. Now, Artemis of Ephesus was also known to the Romans as Diana of Ephesus. So if you don't like history and it bores you, please you know, go through this because there's a, there's a reason why I'm going through this. If you love history, I know I've got your ears on this, okay? So Diana of Ephesus was the principal deity of this huge metropolis uh, and in Ephesus was worshipped more widely in the surrounding region and in all parts of the known world at that time as the only deity. She was worshipped as the great mother goddess 
and as a mother goddess, fertility and reproductive powers were controlled by her. And as this mother goddess possessed fertility and reproduction that caused the whole earth to blossom with life of all kinds, she was also the goddess of childbirth and a nourishing mother to all. Animals and wildlife were part of her domain and under her control. Now, the grand temple that sat in Ephesus at that time was spoken by ancient writers of the time as being one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, the structure of this worship was integrally interwoven into the fabric of daily life and culture. The temple actually functioned as a banking and financial center as well, where monies were deposited and borrowed from the temple coffers. The cult also owned substantial amounts of property in the area, and also one of the 12 calendar months that was in that region was named after her, and during the entire month of an annual festival was held in her honor. The worshipers of Artemis regarded her as the supreme among all other gods and goddesses. They called her savior, lord, queen of the world. So as a supremely powerful deity, she could exercise her power um, for the benefit of her worshipers who faced attacks from opposing powers and spirits. She basically is identified as the goddess of witchcraft and the moon goddess and ascribed with power over all the spirits of the underworld. Many magical amulets that's been discovered over the centuries bear the image of the Ephesian Artemis. Her power also extended to the stars, the zodiac, which if you look at the image, if you see a picture of it, I don't have one up there, it shows as a necklace around her neck. And so she was widely believed because of the control over the zodiac that the stars widely believed to be animated by spiritual powers and tied to a person's faith. In fact, those who worshipped Artemis believed they were devoted to an awesome and unrivaled deity that could not only help in their daily affairs of life, but provide them with protection from evil powers and break the bonds of fate. Thank you for paying attention to this. <laughs> so as you hear this history, it's no wonder that these men and women considered Paul and this Jesus a threat to their very existence, as well as turning upside down their world of worship and commerce. So let's look at the next slide and read on in these passages. So when this group of artisans and craftsmen, probably a few hundred, maybe two, three, four hundred, heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. So that as they shouted and screamed this, the whole city, imagine a quarter million people, became filled with confusion. And as a city, they rushed together into the theater. Now, this theater, by the way, was uh, seated about 200 and, or 24,000 people at its maximum. And the sound quality, by, as uh, archaeologists have dug it up and examined it, rivaled the acoustics of it, rivaled the, the uh, Santa Barbara Bowl or the Hollywood Bowl. Has anybody ever been to there? OK, you know how incredible that is. So imagine this scene together. And they rushed together, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companion in travel. So 
This theater overlooked the harbor of Ephesus, and again, as I mentioned, seated about 24,000 people. So by the end of the story, as we're reading it, it's very possible that the stadium was filled maybe to capacity. So just kind of picture that into your mind. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, being the man of action that he is, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs, um, it's got a little E there, but you don't have that in your picture. So these Asiarchs would be very influential, powerful leaders within the city, probably very rich, who had become friends with Paul, and they sent letters saying, don't go in. It's really important that you go in. Don't go in there. And sent to him and urging him not to venture into this theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in great confusion and it's really funny. Most of them didn't even know why they'd come together. <laughs> That's how nuts this was. So some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make defense of the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, now that's important, because at this time, culturally speaking, the Gentiles considered the way, the way of Jesus, the way of the Lord here, as a separate sect of Judaism. And the Gentiles understood Judaism as being, first of all, the worship of one true God only and the condemnation of idolatry. And so the second most of this crowd recognizes it's a Jew, they go wild. They absolutely go wild. And they all, for two hours, cried out with one voice, great is the Artemis of Ephesians. I mean, two hours. I mean, the only thing that comes to my mind that would even come close to this as being at some rock concert, and for two hours there is screaming and yelling going on with the songs with no breaks in between. Now that's the picture that we have here. And it's, and it's really absolutely you know, staggering to think about. How many of you have been to a concert that's just absolutely crazy? Okay. It doesn't even compare to the Paso Robles Fair up here. <laughs> and going to a venue. You're talking huge Hollywood Bowl type of thing going on here. So let's finish up with the last slide here. And so when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, now this town clerk, by the way, is uh, similar to what you might call a mayor of a major city. He was also a go-between between the government of Rome who ruled the entire area and the government of this Ephesian city. And he says, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess." Now, it's really interesting that as this man who is an official is trying to quiet the crowd and he's bringing reason to this insanity that's going on, he mentions that these men and companions are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Now, first of all, that word sacrilegious there literally means temple robbers. They were not trying to go in and get the gold and the silver and steal from the temple, first of all. And secondly... They did not speak against Artemis. And that's a very important part of the story. 
For those who did not know Jesus yet, as Paul proclaimed this good news of the kingdom, Paul would proclaim first Jesus and his works of power on earth, his death as an atonement for sins, and his resurrection. Now, many times, along with this proclamation, the Holy Spirit would confirm with signs of power, real power, that was in contrast to the weaker power of idols. Then Paul would contrast the living Jesus to the dead gods and idols. Now, I think it's really crucial to understand that, to note that Paul would not be preaching against the wrongs of society and particularly idol worship to unbelievers, but the proclamation for Jesus Christ. I think that's a lot different than in our days, especially in America. I think there's a tendency to bash culture, to bash and, and denounce what's wrong with our society, to speak against and proclaim and defame idols as a message to unbelievers. That's simply not what we see going on here of how God led Paul. Now, in his letters to believers, Paul, as well as other writers in the New Testament, was much more explicit about idolatry, the dangers of entrapment, and to forsake all idols that would draw believers away from the one true God. And that is really where we're going to be going in a little bit as we hone in on this, that as most of us in this room are believers, it's very important that we understand this connection between idolatry and and what kind of contrast that is to following the true God. So for those here who don't know the Lord or to those who are listening through live stream and you don't know the Lord, this is really a message to believers about idolatry. So we'll return to this topic in a couple of minutes, but let's finish up with this last bit of scripture here. The final slide. So if therefore... This clerk goes on, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. It's a little neat word about this crazy thing going on. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now, it's, it's, it's an odd ending to this whole story, isn't it? When you really think about it. But I think Luke, being the intelligent man that he is, is bringing closure to the story with this high official to show readers that proclaiming the gospel of Jesus while keeping within the bounds of legality of the culture should be an aim of all believers. Civil disobedience is to really be the exception rather than the rule. In fact, the whole book of Acts, when you look at it, the rights, uh, when, when believers went on trial before legal officials, had kept the law of the land and would have been exonerated in the eyes of the law, just like their Savior, the Lord Jesus, who though he was innocent, was still tried as a criminal. I think that bears again repeating that we understand 
what Luke is saying here. Okay, so take a breath. Okay, let's change gears. Let's circle back to this deeply rooted issue of idolatry within believers' lives. As you look at this passage with these Ephesians Christians, they're struggling with idolatry. And we see this as an example of forsaking everything to gain Christ and hold firmly to him. Why this was so difficult for people to renounce this type of idolatry was because they had grown up with household idols and magical formulas and spells. Now think about that. That was their existence. That was their cultural place where they had come of. This was normal for them. I'm sure the Apostle Paul taught the importance of leaving behind these objects and devoting themselves to Christ alone. Yet no amount of preaching appears to have convinced these Ephesians in the earliest stage of their walk with the Lord. God used dramatic events like healings, deliverance, a demonic demonstration of Satan's power that destroyed these false Jewish exorcists to help them see the danger of holding on to these practices. Now, that's really interesting. It's a shocking thing maybe to us to see this. But really, if, just again, a little history lesson. Many uncovered documents have been discovered. We see many early Christians worshiping their idols alongside Jesus and calling upon other spiritual powers with magical spells. They tried to blend following Jesus with various other religious practices and beliefs. So the question comes up, what does that have to do with us now? in these modern days and in our culture. Again, bear with me a little bit. We may not be in our American culture where we have temples that we go to or there's, you know, this overt religious worship. But it's really important that we understand there is covertly still very powerful worship going on that we've grown up with or partake in right now. So, let's go to the slide here. And I think it'd be important that we kind of try to make a definition in some senses of what an idol is. Okay? And as you can see on the slide, I'm just going to read it. It says, something or someone that becomes more important than God to your identity, your happiness, your hope, or your meaning, functionally, that is your God. Let me read that again. Something or someone that becomes more important than God to your identity, who you are, your happiness, your hope, or your meaning. Functionally, that is your God. And what that looks like, it's like it's taking good things, gifts, that have been given to us, like money, creation, family, marriage, and turning them into ultimate things. It's taking relative things like achievement, career, acceptance, approval, and turning them into absolutes for us. Think of the culture we live in. There's a deep desire to attain and possess we see and hear from so many sources that want our attention 
and awaken our desires. The pride and arrogance of position and power, though temporary, is very alluring to us as men and women. We watch people who seemingly have it all, and we change to someone who will do anything to become like them. We call them idols. I mean, let me just give you an example. Music. Those of you who are, grew up in the 80s and 90s, do you familiar with a man called William Michael Albert Broad? Anybody? He's better known as Billy. Ah, there you go. How about a most popular TV show about rising and aspiring singers and performers? American Idol. Hey, sports. Idols, American idols, football, baseball, hockey. All over the world, soccer, soccer idols. Um, I love The Natural, love the movie The Natural. Speaks about uh, Roy Hobbs. And early in the movie, as he's going to reach for his desire to be the best baseball player there is, the woman who's eventually going to shoot him says, well, what do you hope to attain? What do you want to be? I want to be the best there ever was. And she asks, well, then what? And he says, well, then I can walk down the street and everybody will look at me and say, there goes Roy Hobbs, the best baseball player there ever was. And she looks at him and says, is that it? And he goes, well, what else is there? So let's look at the next slide. And this is from Tim Keller. And I think it, it, it really helps, again, helps give us definition. He says, a counterfeit God is anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. An idol has such controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it, without a second thought. It can be a family and children, a career, making money or achievement, and critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in Christian service. I think it's really important that we wrap ourselves around this. And in fact, I'm just going to take a break for a minute as we participate, it's hard to participate, I realize, when you have one person standing and you're sitting there. But I'd like to maybe just take and pause a second and ask the Lord who's here, because he said, he, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of you, and to ask the Spirit of God to search us and to reveal things as much as we've gone over in the last couple of minutes and ask the Lord to bring things up, or in the next few days to bring things up that he wants to put his finger to. So 
if you feel comfortable, just join me for a second, and I'll maybe just lead us in this prayer. First of all, as much as we know you, Lord Jesus, God, Father, as, we, as much as we've grown to know you in our experience and time with you, we, we just want to acknowledge, first of all, that you have bought and paid for us and that we belong to you first. Now, Lord, we don't know all of who you are. We don't know all that that means, but we do recognize the truth of that statement, and we want to ask that you would search us and know us and that you would reveal to us hidden places, hidden loves that compete for your love, passions and desires that are in contrast to passion for you and desiring you. So would you come and just even right now while we're going through the rest of your word or in the, in the upcoming days, would you shine your light we're asking you to go to the deepest parts because you already know us, but let us know you and know ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we read in the New Testament, what we classically call the New Testament, Paul and other writers taught believers that behind these dead images of idolatry and the sacrifices that went to these idols, was demonic activity that would deceive and eventually enslave and then finally destroy them. Sometimes that's hard for us to accept that those words mean that and that our present-day idols can do the same to us. But let's look at something here. Luke, our writer of the book of Acts here, also wrote, one of the accounts of Jesus' life. It's called the Gospel of Luke. And recorded one of Jesus' teachings on one of our most common cultural idols today, as well as back then, and can become one of our strongest personal idols. So let's look at that passage of Scripture. This is out of Luke 16, 13. And Jesus says, A servant cannot serve two masters. He will hate the first master and love the second, or he will be devoted to the first and despise the second. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, we'll look at the aspects of love in a little bit because that's very integral to where we're going here. But let's understand that, that word servant there because the word servant there is from the Greek word doulo, which means to be a slave. Now, again, do your historical background on a slave. I'm not going to. I've already gone long enough on the histories. But it's really important that you understand what a slave meant in that context. In the sense of being a slave, you cannot serve two masters. And Jesus contrasts God and wealth. Now, that word wealth there is a very important word in the sense that in, if you're a King James fan, it says mammon, and it's capitalized. And it really, the Greek word behind it stood for a position of trust, something that enriches us that we put our trust in and relax in. It's not just money. Money in and of itself is, is, a, is a gift. It's, a, it's nothing. It's the love of money that Paul says becomes a root for all evils. 
And so it's interesting that we think, well, I, I, I'm just neutral. I can be in the middle. I don't have to serve anything. Well, really, spiritually, that's incorrect. And that's a falsehood that we can believe in. We are a slave to whomever we give ourselves to. Whatever we give most of our time, our attention, our, our interests, that is what we are serving. And so Jesus is contrasting the fact that you will despise or hate one or the other and the power of it. It doesn't mean that we, in this sense, that having riches and having a place of comfort is wrong, but when it becomes something that has to become part of our life that we trust in, that is when it becomes our master. So that we love and devotion, you can't have both. The Apostle John goes even deeper about idolatry and how it can hold such a deep place into us. Let's look at the next slide. This is out of John's letter, chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the strong desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Now, earlier I mentioned the culture that we live in, so we're going to just sort of push aside the negative portion of the scripture. And I want to focus on the fact that he says, do not love the world or anything of the world, because if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. Now, John's earlier description of God in John 3.16, which is a very famous passage, most of us are familiar with it, because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would have eternal life. It's interesting that Paul speaks to us and says, using the same Greek words of love there and loving the world. Wait a minute, that's a contrast. Why, why is there a contrast there? Now, some um, theologians have brought out the point that possibly he's just simply using a, ter a Greek terminology that was known in the world at that time and simply pointing to this and, and the fact that this is a cultural term and that's what this means. I, I understand that point and it has some validity, but I think it goes deeper. Because God is using language here of an ability to love and being in a meaningful family relationship. Father. Notice the word father there. Which makes us distinct and unique from the animal world. That's what makes you... That's why we are not descended from animals. We above all have the capacity to love with an intense love and have a devotion in a family way to a father or a mother. That is far beyond the animal world. In fact, let's look at the definition of this Greek word here that John uses for love. Agape love is a love called out of one's person 
by the preciousness of the object loved. Again, agape is a love that is called out of one's person by the preciousness of an object loved. I'm going to put this out. I want you to understand the fact that you were created in the image of God. The capacity for someone or something that draws out love, just as it is in God's heart, is also in our heart. That is why we can be so entrenched in someone or something that draws our devotion, our attention, our energy, because God has created us in this way. You following that? I believe because that we are in his image, we have the same capacity to love in this way that no animal or any other created thing has. That's a very powerful statement. And it also raises up the very taproot of why something or someone can take the place of God in our lives, of one that we are devoted to, to Jesus, and why we can be so drawn into that. So, as we're finishing up here, and we're going to actually get to this point, as maybe the Holy Spirit's already prodding you and, and speaking to something for you about what you may love and be devoted to. And we're going to finish up to understand how we can be free from the power of idolatry and idols. It's really helpful that at least maybe we have some indicators when someone or something is replacing God as our source. Now, by no means is this going to be anywhere near complete, but at least it gives a framework to ask more questions. And maybe to ask God like David did, which we did earlier, search me and know me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. So let's look at the slide. Indicators of idolatry. Are we going to lose someone or something? Is that being threatened? One indicator can be extreme anger and hostility that controls us. It's sort of like the passage that we read here in Acts when Demetrius and his co-workers are reacting to their world being turned upside down, extreme anger and passion, and they want to kill Paul and his companions. This condition in us, left unhealed, can actually result into a fixed place of unforgiveness and then isolate us from experiencing the presence of God. That's one indicator. The next slide, the next indicator, might be an extreme fear and anxiousness that grips us. Maybe you find in your life when, when something or someone is threatened from you losing that, we just can't handle that. I, I, the pressure's too great. I can't live with that. I'm afraid of what this is going to mean moving forward with my life. Say you lose your health. Let's say something happens that disfigures your, your body or your face. You lose your career. 
What am I going to do now? I don't know where I'm going to turn. That can be an indicator that really God is not your source. He is not the definition of your image. And fear grips us and anxiousness. Next slide. Another indicator can be a hopeless grieving that overwhelms us. Now, this is different than a normal grieving process or sadness from the loss of someone or something. This is another hopelessness. As we read before, it means that your life is no longer worth living. Maybe you're experiencing that. Maybe you're experiencing that now. That's a good time to turn back to God and say, Oh, Lord, did this replace who you are in my life? Was this thing or this God my hope for the future? And the last indicator can be complacency. Now, there's a, there's a little tricky, slidey one there. Where we live here on the Central Coast is very comfortable. Good earnings, great weather, lots of food, lots of provisions. So it can lead us into a place of saying, I have no needs, I'm comfortable. I really don't need anything or anyone, I'm fine. A passion for God is no longer there, and what he loves no longer drives us. Now, you can maybe say, well, look, I'm my own person. <laughs> I don't have to depend on anything or anyone. Well, really, again, looking back at that issue of slavery, you're really a slave to yourself. You have created God in your own image. And thus, whatever is right in your sight, you do. That meets your needs and who you are and your wants. Again, it's a cul-de-sac that traps us. So, to end here, what are some essentials for us to be free from idolatry? Again, this is not complete, but a framework to start with. Let's look at the next slide. The love of God being comprehended and embraced. Let's look at what John says in the next slide. 1 John 4.10, he says, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us, sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The more we, we grab a hold of this revelation of God's love in a historical place first, that Jesus did come. He did die. He was raised from the dead. And the more we say, God, reveal that love to me. Show me this love in all its multifaceted and, and, and deep ways. Grab a hold of me. Let me comprehend it. Let me grab a hold of this. Because remember, when you love someone, the love of others grows distant, doesn't it? Think of your first love. May not be the person next to you, so we don't you know. Just think it to yourself. But you remember how you felt. The world was brighter. Everything was better. This person encapsulated everything you had ever wanted. 
the idealism of that first love is never captured again. Now, you may have a deeper love that's more reasonable and more committed to someone or something, right? But it's never like that first love. And so, with the love of the Father through his son Jesus that captures us and, and grabs us and holds us, all other loves have no place to grab hold of. They take their proper place of enjoyment. Those, apps, those gifts become just that, gifts that we enjoy. Those, those um, relative things like career and approval and acceptance, they stay relative in the face of our love for God. We see his face. We see the face of Jesus. We're changed into his image, Paul says in Corinthians. Next slide. His return can be a very powerful, cleansing, purifying thing that he is going to come for us. He is going to come for you. He is returning to this earth just as he promised. Let's look at this passage again from John's first letter, chapter 3, 1 through 3. He says, see, he's writing to these believers whom he loves. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. In powerful words, that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are, John says. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Again, knowledge, relational knowledge is what he's talking about here. Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But even though we don't know all the, what's going to happen, what that's going to look like totally for sure, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. As we turn our attention to this return of Christ, who said he would come again, just as he rose, and just as you see me going, I'm going to come again. He is coming back for you. Whether he comes back for the believers in our lifetime, or he comes for you at the time of your death or demise. You have an eternity that yawns before you that will make this time frame that we live in, this culture, this world, be very temporary and transient compared to eternity. And knowing that he is returning from you and that hope that remains there will purify us, will keep us clean. We will be devoted to the one who is coming for us. He calls us the bride of Christ and as a husband coming for his bride. But understand that this is also personal that he's coming for you. He's made a place for you. That you will live with him forever. What a promise. And then our last slide here. His rewards. His rewards. <laughs> Remember Jesus said, the disciples came to Jesus one time and said, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. Really what they're saying is, what do we get out of this? <laughs> And Jesus said, know this, that those of you that have lost lands and houses and mothers and fathers and relationships will be given back a hundred times more in this 
mothers and fathers and lands and, and possessions and rewards in this life and in the life to come. Idols never give what we think they promise. Idols never give what they promise, ultimately. But God cannot change in that though heaven and earth pass away, his word and promises will always remain. And the resurrection of Jesus and his promise remains always with us. You have rewards in the future. Your sacrifice, your service, your love now means that you will be rewarded in this life as well with a crown of life and the power of God and the power of this eternal life moving through you and in you as well as the life to come that you have been given a place. And that just purifies us. Now again, it's not a complete list. And let's have the band come up. We're going to go ahead and finish here as we worship. And while they're doing that, I just want to share a personal story. Remember we were reading what Keller was describing, you know, when he was talking about Christian service. And I can just tell you honestly from my life that this possessed me as a young man. I'd been raised in Christ, loved him, and I, and I knew I'd been called to shepherd, to pastor, to, to care for God's flock. That, that was my primary calling. But what happened as a young man is that I, wanted, I needed approval. I needed the, the approval and of, of achievement, the approval of others. And that literally serving God's people became an idol to me. No longer was it just loving God and loving his people. And then within that, it became an all-encompassing desire and passion in me. And I nearly lost my family because of that. I certainly lost God's love. Oh, I was doing the right things in some ways. It wasn't that I was totally consumed. I, I had some altruistic motives. But at the base core, I was really feeding my need for approval, for achievement. I was taking a place of adoration that really belongs to God alone. So... I share that story in the sense that we are all susceptible. We are all tempted and allured. But that it's really crucial that we be drawn to the love of God that's in Christ. And that we ask our serious questions. That when we read this passage again and we meditate on this, that we ask the Lord to continue to come. And that we embrace what God is for us in. And then we keep ourselves from idols. As, as John says in the last verse of his letter, flee, my, my brethren, my dear brethren, flee from idols.